This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Tonic, heard Saturday afternoons at 1 and Sunday mornings at 11 on Zoomer Radio. The following is a sponsored program. Zoomer Radio and MZ Media Incorporated do not endorse any of the statements or opinions made by the contributors. People want a home and they want to own a home and be proud of it. And in many cases, because we haven't had a lot of new apartments built and because a lot of the apartment buildings in town are older, there are certain things that people dream of in terms of a modern home. And since they haven't had it for a long time in a rental apartment, they've almost been forced to dream about it. Welcome to the new and expanded 60-minute version of The Tonic. I'm your host, Jamie Busson, and we're here to talk about your health and wellness. On today's show, we're going to discuss the factors impacting the residential real estate market in Toronto. We'll find out about cannabis and seniors. Then we'll hear about healthy cooking hacks. And lastly, we'll learn about travel to Morocco. But first, a little bit of business. Support for today's show comes from the Benvenuto Group. The Benvenuto Group is an owner and developer of quality high-rise condominium and rental properties in Toronto and Montreal. The Benvenuto team is passionate about delivering quality living spaces, top lifestyle amenities, important services, and innovative design tailored specifically to its residents in every particular submarket. The Benvenuto Group is currently designing several new projects in Toronto, Montreal, and Chicago that will not only become exceptional places to live as an owner or as a renter, but that will also deliver some of the highest levels of sustainability, energy efficiency, and comfort, and will set the standard for informed residents. Mitchell Abrahams is the principal of the Benvenuto Group. He's a real estate professional with over 25 years of commercial and multifamily residential real estate experience. He's converted apartments into condominiums and developed condominium and apartment projects. Welcome back to the show. Nice to be back. I think a lot of homeowners and potential homeowners in Toronto spend time playing the real estate game. And by that, I mean, you know, they're they're trying to sell high and and buy low. And I thought it would be interesting to look at some of the factors that are actually impacting prices beyond just supply and demand, or if you want to look at it, what are the factors that impact supply and demand? Because obviously it impacts you when you're making decisions on how you're going to invest in in what you're going to build, and you've got to be forward thinking in, in what the demand is actually going to be. I think we're way past the the point of being forward thinking, right? I think the main question on everybody's mind is like, how long can you be in a positive real estate market? Everyone always expects things to be cyclical. Right. And, and I think people were talking about seeing the top of the market in 2003 and in 2007 and then again in 2010. And right. there's a natural tendency of people to say, well, this just can't continue. And why and what's pushing it up and where are the risks of it going down? And it seems to be a real topic of discussion, particularly in Toronto, where so much is focused on should I or shouldn't I be buying now and where should I be doing it? Well, so much of people's wealth is now tied up in real estate, whereas before that wasn't necessarily the case, but out of necessity, it kind of has to be. And let's not forget that at some point in the last uh, 15 or 20 years, there became a sort of almost a cultural, if not, you know, a political sort of impetus that people should be homeowners. Right. Right. So once you start that ball rolling, then, uh, you know, where do you stop it? It's the Canadian dream. I guess the question is, what does the home look like? But that's a discussion for another day. So what do you suppose is the one 
I mean, there's a lot of contributing factors in my mind, but what do you think is the primary driving factor in this current real estate market? I think to a large degree, this started with lower interest rates and continues to be lower interest rates. I agree. Right? I mean, people just have a natural tendency to try to convince themselves of what they can afford. Right. Right? We see it on the streets, uh, fancier and fancier cars on leases over the last 20 years, and people want a home and they want to own a home and be proud of it. And in, in many cases, you know. Because we haven't had a lot of new apartments built and because of a lot of the apartment buildings in town are older, there are certain things that people, you know, dream of in terms of a modern home. And since they haven't had it for a long time in a rental apartment, they've almost been forced to dream about it in a home or in a condominium. And those things can be as simple as a modern kitchen and air conditioning and dishwasher and washer dryer that aren't in a lot of our existing housing stock from the rental side. So it's easy to see why people dream about owning something new. Right. I mean, there is a huge disparity between your average apartment and your average house in, in, in terms of amenities and modernity, you know. Right. And as much as people like to sort of jump on all these condo towers that have changed the, the city. Right. In a pretty affordable way, people get a lot of lifestyle. Right. I mean, yeah. you have a fitness room that's of pretty good quality. You've got a party room where you can entertain your guests, usually with a theater type of screen and that type of thing. You can go down with a bunch of friends and watch a hockey game. Right. Um, and you've got nice finishes and a beautiful bathroom and, and those type of things. So you can see where people sort of uh, fall in love with it. OK, so if interest rates are the primary factor and, and sort of we're sort of socialized to, to want to have home ownership, what are some of the other factors? I mean, why don't, why don't we go back and forth and we'll just sort of name some of the things. I think, you know, obviously the government is trying to deal with it, but there's been a lot of influx of, of foreign money coming into the market, particularly in Vancouver and Toronto. And I think that's impacted the market. I think it impacted the market in many ways. Number one, we have a pretty good educational system. Right. People from all over the world want to send their kids to Canada to get a university education. Right. A lot of those people in markets where they've found lots of wealth in the last uh, few decades have said, while I'm sending them there, it's a great opportunity to move some capital out of where we live, which may be more regulated, less free, right. um, less certain in terms of values. So let's do two things at the same time. So we've seen a big influx of foreign students and of foreign investors. On right. top of that, we've seen pure foreign investors getting cash into Canada, seen as a safe haven. And we've sort of played into that and built an industry in some ways around servicing what they're looking for. Right. I mean, and a subset of that are people that are, are purely investing in the market, as well as investing it in sort of different ways, such as Airbnb, for example, where, you know, people are buying properties, converting them into short-term rental properties or using condos that they've, you know, either are on a long-term lease or own for those purposes to generate income in a different way. It's a whole new look at how to sort of make sense of buying something that you may be reaching to buy. Right. Um, I think the jury's still out uh, in terms of how it functions properly. I'm not an expert in terms of uh, short-term rentals, more in long-term rentals and things designed for families. But there certainly are all kinds of people who view the investment in a different way. Right. That's sort of on the supply side. But on the demand side, I actually think... There's some factors that are, are changing, and they're generational, right? Why don't we focus – where do you want to start? Do you want to start on the on the younger end or the older end? Do you want to start with the boomers or the millennials? Let's start with boomers. Uh, okay. Because I think it's appropriate for our audience. Sure. Okay. So interest rates are obviously impacting the boomers in a number of different ways, right? I think in many ways. 
you know, first of all, they've got a, a big asset in their existing home if they own a home. Right. Which is appreciated. You know, to be a real estate genius in, in Toronto just means you've sat on the same property for 10 years, right? You Correct. Know? We all have heard 52 times at a, at a cocktail party of people who bought their house for $37,000 in 1964 and just <laughs> right. sold it for $2.5 million. And someone's going to tear it down. Right, exactly. Because right? that's land value. Right. So it is a big change. And no, I don't think anyone even expected it. And again, I think there are a lot of people who've uh, generated a lot of wealth that they weren't even counting on in terms of the appreciation of their home. So it's changed a lot of people's minds. The question is, what do you do with it? Right. If you're sitting on this asset that's worth a lot of money, you can easily trade it evenly for a condominium in a great area. But many people now look at that and say, that's a big part of my retirement, or it's my ability to help subsidize my kids to get into the market. Right. So what can I move to that... I, Makes me happy, but doesn't take up all the proceeds of what I've just sold. Right. And obviously, that's why you're you're now in the market of creating apartment buildings that have more amenities, right? You're, you're servicing that particular segment of, of the population who perhaps don't want to buy a condo because it ties up too much of their capital going forward. We think that there certainly is a market for that. There are people who say, I have this tremendous amount of capital that I saved up in my house, I can go buy a condominium for a million or a million and a half dollars. Right. But maybe that's not what I want to do. And maybe that's not where I think I'm putting my money in as conservative a way as I was when I was buying a house. Right. And maybe I don't need that much space. And maybe I'm not sure what I need right now. Uh, and I think rental for a lot of people, if you're building new high quality rental, offers a flexibility People can try it. They can decide to buy a condominium later. They can uh, say, I, I rented too little or too much space and go see their landlord and switch to something larger. And I think that there's also a factor of there are a lot of responsibilities in owning a house. Right. You go away. Just yesterday, I got a call from my sister in Montreal, and you know she was checking my dad's house. My dad is down south for a few months. Frozen and, pipes. And it was yeah. three degrees in, in yeah. his house. So you think about it, and being in a rental building, as co- even compared to being in a condominium, someone's there to manage the building professionally and make sure that those things don't happen, which is a nice peace of mind, particularly when you become an empty nester. Right. I also think another impact of interest rates is, you know, historically... People were told, you know, you work your career, you you build up some money and you invest it so that when you're older, those investments will be used for your retirement. But with interest rates being historically low for the better part of a decade, those investments aren't the same anymore. People haven't been able to generate the income from their investments, whereas they keep their money in, in real estate and it has appreciated. So now they're kind of stuck in that if they pulled their money out of the real estate, i.e. their family home, and trying to reinsert it into the stock market, bonds, whatever, what have you, mutual funds, they're not going to get the return that they would have gotten or they did receive on the real estate, which means it's hard for them to make that move going forward because, you know, where's the income going to come from? Agreed. I mean, we're looking at a time where even with the most recent moves in real estate, in interest rates, I looked the other day and a 30-year Canadian bond was just over 2%. I'll put money on this. Interest rates are going to go back down by the summer. And you know why I think that? Because Canadians cannot afford higher interest rates. I think we would see a ton of personal bankruptcies. I think what's going to happen is the Canadian dollar is going to go down to the 60s because that's that's the only room they have right now. They can't keep up with the interest rates. So something's got to give. And I think it's going to be the Canadian dollar. One could argue at the same time that as much as Canadians 
can't afford it. Yeah. The Canadian government certainly can't afford to be operating with the current levels of debt with the higher interest rates right. as well. Right. So it doesn't make any sense. Right. So I think at some point, you know, there's an alignment in trying to keep them within a range. I think there's a careful balance where people want to sort of manage inflation. Right. But at the same time, I agree. I don't think anybody is talking about rates escalating to where we used to think that you sold your house and then you bought you know, government of Canada bonds at right. 8 to 10% and you were set. Right, exactly. Uh, now that's gone away. And then particularly with recent volatility, but always in the impact of things like oil and what, it's hard to look and see where there is certainty in alternative investments and in what used to be mainstream investments. So I think people, part of why people are prepared to invest more in real estate is it's performed. It's performed in good times yeah. and bad. And yeah. some people though, I find are, you know, they're doing it differently than they used to. Uh, you know, they so? maybe they're instead of buying themselves a fancy condominium to retire to, they're taking something more modest, but buying a couple smaller condominiums as rental properties. And, you know, they're managing that for income, but they also know that that creates options for them. You know, maybe one day my kids will come back from university or move back to Toronto and right. and they'll want to move into that unit. Uh, people are thinking of real estate in a very stable way. And I think as long as they manage their debt level as well, it probably makes sense. Let's look at the other end of the spectrum and the people that are just sort of getting into the market. How do you see their sort of personal life choices as impacting the the real estate market? You know, I think often we try to put a uh, short-term view on a long-term asset. And that, right. and that's the challenge. And of course it's a challenge, right? Cuz yeah. you know, even with your investments, you look at your statement every month and things go up and down and your smile or frown comes on your face. Right. I think at the moment that uh, Real estate's expensive for a number of reasons, you know, not the least of which has been supply and demand. There's just a lot of, of money available and people are looking for it. And another part of it is we've got a tight rental market. And no matter what you buy as an investor, you probably can rent it out at a pretty good rental rate in this city. That said, you know, there are certain constraints as to how much development can be done within the city itself. And in particular, I'm talking about urban Toronto. Right. You know, there are single-family neighborhoods which aren't going to be redeveloped as high-rise. They're protected neighborhoods. And really, development is being directed towards infill areas, particularly around transit nodes. That's not that many areas that aren't exploited yet, and the city is going to continue to grow. And I think as much as things are expensive today relatively, if you close your eyes and project 15 years forwards, we're going to be surprised by how expensive a city this is going to become in the longer term. Do you think we become a world-class city? Has it come to that? Where we're, we're just so attractive to people that we've actually sort of reached a different level? We are so conservative uh, in some ways as Canadians that it's hard to even we don't admit, admit that admit we're it. a world-class yeah. city. Yeah. I think we're a pretty good place, yeah. right? When you look at the state of the world, it's a pretty great place to bring up a family. So I think that's driver number one. Number two, we certainly attract a lot of interesting industries, and we've got a lot of creative people, and we've got a fantastic diversity that I think people look to us as a world-class city. Of course, it's hard because when you travel to other places in the world, there are there's natural beauty, right. and, and there are— It isn't quite so cold, right, perhaps. Right, uh, and there's historical uh, things that you like to visit and whatever right. that it's hard to compete with. So it's hard often to see a North American city other than you know uh, New York or uh, perhaps— don't say Los Angeles. Uh, I, you know, I was going to say San Francisco or okay, whatever, yeah, but, yeah. Uh, you know, becoming seen as world-class cities. Right. But I think we're pretty close. 
Yeah, I think we are. And I think the political situation in the U.S. sort of drives home all the positives that we have here without getting too political. I, I, I think, you know, there we don't have the extreme sort of volatility in our political system that they seem to be relishing in the last, you know, five, six years. We seem to find a way to uh, succeed in spite of our politics. Yeah, I think uh, that's true. Rather than sort of uh, cower uh, because of them. I think you're right. It'll be interesting to see, you know, where the market goes. My prediction is this. Let's let's end with a prediction. I think interest rates are going to dip down by a half percent by June, and I think the real estate market's going to heat up again. I actually don't see I don't see it cooling off anytime soon. What do you think? I think 2020 is going to be a tough year in the states because of all the money they've been pumping into the market for so long to try to keep the economy at 4% instead of 2 Right. And that's going to sort of scare people a little bit, but not to the point where we see any significant change in our market. And I think a year or two after that, we're going to see Toronto back on a growth uh, curve that people uh, are going to say that values from a few years ago look cheap. Fantastic. Well, thank you for coming on the show today. My pleasure. We've got to take a short break, but when we return, we're going to learn all about cannabis and seniors on The Tonic. I'd like to give a shout out to our new sponsor, Omega Alpha. This company is 100% Canadian owned. Their team consists of allopathic and naturopathic doctors, nutritionists, researchers, and other scientific professionals, all led by their CEO, Dr. Gordon Chang. Formulations are created on their 40,000-square-foot facility located in Toronto. Omega Alpha uses only the highest quality ingredients to manufacture the most efficacious yet price-friendly nutraceuticals. For more information about Omega Alpha, visit OmegaAlphaInc.com. The Big Carrot is a worker-owned natural food market that's been committed to local, organic, non-GMO, and sustainable food systems since 1983. They're a one-stop shop offering produce, grocery, bulk, body care, and holistic dispensary. The juice and smoothie bars and kitchens serve up hundreds of healthy dishes and drinks daily. Building community is at the core of their vision, which they deliver through education, outreach, and giving. They want everyone to share in the goodness they offer. Visit their website for more information at thebigcarrot.ca. You're listening to The Tonic on Sumer Radio. Welcome back. My next guest, Dr. Jonas Vanderswan, is a primary care physician, advocate, and enthusiastic proponent of medical cannabis as an alternative treatment option for patients. Recognized in Canada as a medical cannabis educator and specialist, he's been appointed the medical director and chair of the Clinical Advisory Board for WeedMD, a Health Canada licensed producer of medical cannabis. In this role, Dr. Vanderswan is continuing to advocate for the use of medical cannabis with a focus on education of both patients and medical professionals, and is also actively engaged with leading institutions in the pursuit of furthering clinical research in the field. Welcome to the show, Doctor. Great. Thanks for having me. I know that you've treated some 1,000 patients with cannabis, so I thought it would be great to bring you on today to discuss the specifics of treating seniors, which is a little bit different than treating the general population, right? Yeah, I would say so. So in your experience, are you seeing a shift in senior demographics when it comes to using cannabis? Yeah, most definitely. So my journey in medical cannabis started probably three to four years ago. And in those initial stages, I saw very few seniors coming through the door. That has certainly changed. I would say over the last a year or two, it's probably the most rapidly expanding demographic that was coming through the door, seeking information about the possibility of starting medical cannabis therapy. Why do you think that is? Why has there been this change? 
Yeah, I mean, it's a good question. And I think it's probably, um, there's a lot of factors that go into that. Certainly, I think in general, in society, we're starting to see that that stigma around cannabis start to lift. Uh, With legalization, that has only increased. People are now becoming aware that cannabis is not just a drug for people to get high. Word is getting out around the potential clinical benefits that it can provide. It's relatively safe history. Uh, It certainly, in my mind, has a safety profile. Uh, far more desirable than a lot of the conventional uh, pharmaceuticals that doctors prescribe. Right. And I think you're slowly as well starting to see uh, the physician community uh, start to accept it. Uh, I think that was a community that was slow to embrace it. And I think the other interesting thing is we're seeing the industry evolve. We're starting to see some very sort of trusted names in the healthcare community become a part of the medical cannabis picture speaking particularly about um, chains like Shoppers Drug Mart, right. who are now going to be involved in that process. And I think Shoppers Drug Mart is a very trusted name among the seniors community. And I just think it makes them much more willing to ask uh, about cannabis as a possible option. You mentioned earlier that the doctors were reluctant to embrace uh, medical cannabis. Why do you think that is? Was it the lack of research? I think there's a lot of things. Certainly the lack of research is uh, important. We, we talked about the stigma uh, that sort of culturally has dominated in, in the cannabis landscape as a consequence of nearly 100 years of prohibition. Right. Um, I think that creates biases in, in people's thought patterns, and I don't think the physician community is immune to those biases. Right. We are taught as physicians to practice in an evidence-based manner, and certainly when it compared to conventional pharmaceuticals, cannabis has much less clinical evidence, so that's a barrier. Right. Plus, and doctors think, tend to be conservative too, right? I, I, I mean, I can't speak for all doctors, but I think sort of as a trend, we may be a more conservative population. And I think understandably so. I mean, we, we want to make sure we're not doing any harm. Right. And when there's not a lot of great data out there, I think we're a little bit reluctant. The other thing is we're, we're taught to practice what we're taught. And uh, unfortunately, as it stands now, there's very little teaching in the medical curriculum around medical cannabis. I think that's starting to change, and I think it's going to continue to grow. That's my hope. And hopefully that will lead to a higher number of physicians who are willing uh, to consider cannabis in treatment of their patients. Are you aware of if any of the medical schools are teaching about medical cannabis at this point? Uh, I believe that it is starting. There's a couple of uh, larger name medical schools uh, in the U.S. that are starting to incorporate it in the curriculum. And my hope is that, um, especially with the establishment of the DeGroote Center for Cannabis Medical Cannabis Research at Hamilton, that people may sort of take that lead and run with it and uh, increase the curriculum teaching. Yep, that makes sense. So... In treating uh, seniors, there's sort of particular challenges. A lot of seniors are on multiple medications already. Mm -hmm. Is that sort of an impediment to uh, also prescribing medical cannabis? Or or do you see medical cannabis as sort of bridging gaps or, or difficulties that might exist with somebody taking multiple medications? Yeah, I think, I mean, I think you've sort of alluded to that, sort of a double edged sword. Yeah. Um, we do as physicians, we recognize the senior population as a vulnerable community. You know, as you stated, they're often on multiple medications. There's a higher risk of drug interactions. Some tend to be more frail. So if there was a consequence like a fall, you know, the clinical consequences of that type of event could be much more serious. Of course. So I think we need to be cautious. 
But by the same token, uh, we know that polypharmacy being on multiple medications can be really quite problematic. Yes. Uh, the research would support that as we increase the number of medications, the risk of drug interactions goes up, the risk of hospitalizations goes up. And in that respect, cannabis may be a very desirable alternative because of its what we call multimodal mode of action. Cannabis is a substance that has been shown to be beneficial treating a variety of different conditions. And so instead of patients taking maybe one or two different pills to treat their pain, another pill to treat their insomnia, maybe another pill to treat some of their maybe mood difficulties, could those three or four or five different medications be substituted with one substance, that being cannabis, and leading to effective treatment of that wide range of clinical conditions. It's certainly something that's, that the research is looking into. There's a number of studies that are coming out showing that cannabis could be a good substitute for medications like opioids, uh, sedatives, sleeping pills. Uh, so again, that research is expanding and hopefully it continues to grow. What are you seeing clinically, right? You've, you've treated a number of patients. Are, are you noticing that people are getting off some of their other meds and, and, and switching to medical cannabis or is this sort of a work in progress? Uh, no, unquestionably. Uh, unquestionably. Decreased dosing of narcotics. Many patients are coming off their sleeping pills. People are reducing their benzodiazepines or their, or their nerve medication. It's been quite a remarkable sort of observation. Uh, I've been very impressed by it. And as a result, uh, I'm certainly continuing down this path. Well, that makes sense. And also, obviously, it would be less expensive not only for the individuals uh, who are paying for their medications, but those who are receiving you know, payments from the government, it's, if it's going to be cheaper for the government to keep us all healthy, uh, that's a good thing too. Yeah, definitely. And, and, and not, not only the, the costs, the direct costs of the actual medications, but some of the consequences of some of these medications, as an example, sure. opioid usage, right? Of course, right? Increased risk of hospitalizations, emergency department visits, those costs all need to be sort of figured into the overall equation. Okay. A recent development, of course, has been uh, the legalization for recreational use. And I'm always interested to hear, you know, from from those in the front lines, what's happening. Are people self-medicating? What do you see the impact and the sort of interrelationship between the recreational side and the medical side on on cannabis? Yeah, again, another great question. And and I think it still remains to be seen what the ultimate ramifications of legalization are for medical patients. It is important to recognize that prior to legalization, patients were medicating, self-medicating with cannabis already. Right. right? Yep. We had a very um, high frequency of use of cannabis in this country, uh, regardless of the pro, pro, sort of prohibitive stance that the government was taking. When it comes to the senior population in particular, uh, I think that legalization has probably opened some doors. I think it, I, I alluded to it previously. I think it helped reduce some of the stigma associated with cannabis use, which has probably made the senior population a little more willing to seek advice from their physician. Additionally, I think the fact that we have a medical stream is quite helpful. Uh, this is a community that typically respects the advice of their physician, and I think they'd be much more willing to consider cannabis if they have someone to help them walk through the process, to help with things like dosing, product selection, whatever it may be, as opposed to trying to fumble their way through it on their own. So again, I think the medical stream is very important, especially in the senior population, rather than accessing cannabis through the recreational options. There are some advantages as well to seeking cannabis through the medical stream. Certainly there is a lot of the licensed producers who are picking up the tab 
on the uh, taxes associated with medical cannabis, and as well, shipping is free uh, or paid for by the licensed producer rather than having to pay for shipping when accessing a product through the Ontario Cannabis Store. So, doctor, you don't see any concerns that people are going to self-medicate. And in fact, you see the, the, the sort of the duality as, as being beneficial and, and, and sort of allowing people to get their information on the medical side, which is, which is obviously beneficial. Yeah, I think it's very important that uh, especially elderly people can can get help from people who are uh, experienced in the field. And I think uh, I think we need that medical stream available to those patients. I agree. Thank you for coming on the show today. Appreciate it. We've got to take a short break, but when we return, we'll hear about some healthy cooking hacks on The Tonic. The Tonic is brought to you by Purely Natural. Their liquid greens chlorophyll is the only line of soluble, grit-free, and great-tasting greens on the market. Liquid greens can easily be mixed with your favorite drink to provide a sustained natural boost of energy to help you get through your day. There's unflavored, which is great with orange juice. The mint flavor is cool and refreshing. Dark chocolate has all the health benefits of a salad, but with a great chocolate taste. And for that extra detox boost, try activated charcoal and mint. Enjoy the energy. Enjoy the detox. Enjoy the great taste. Purely natural liquid greens. Are you one of the many Canadians dealing with chronic pain, anxiety, IBS, and other such conditions? Are you interested in finding out more about your options with medical cannabis? Then join one of 22,000 patients nationwide who've let Harvest Medicine be their trusted cannabis healthcare partner and provider. It's never been easier to access Harvest Medicine's healthcare team, education, and resources. Simply download the HMed Connect app from the Android and Apple stores and book your appointment today. To find out more, visit hmed.ca or download the app. That's H-M-E-D Connect from your app store. This is The Tonic on Zoomer Radio. My next guest, Carolyn Tanner-Cohen, is owner and founder of Delicious Dish Cooking School in Toronto. She's been teaching cooking classes for 17 years. She has a science background which edifies her interest in health and fueling the body with foods that will optimize health. Carolyn teaches people how to meal plan, eat healthy, cook with natural whole foods, and organize their kitchen. She teaches new cooks, seasoned cooks, university students who are living on their own for the first time, nannies, housekeepers, and everyone in between. For more information about Carolyn, visit deliciousdish.ca. Welcome back to the show. Hi, Jamie. So you and I share something in common. What is that? A, a few things, but this one okay. in particular, because we were talking about it the other day. We don't like the idea of resolutions, no. right? No, I hate them. They don't work. How do you turn your mind to the whole intentions and mindfulness and, and getting ready to make changes in your life? Okay. Well, I really feel I take December as sort of like a planning session. So I think about what's coming up for the new year. I kind of evaluate what I did all year in 2018 and what I want. So I sort of start thinking about my intentions. And although it's not so, it's mindfulness in a sense, but I'm more thinking in the future. So You're how looking I want forward. To, I'm looking forward. I'm always looking forward. It's just my personality and how I go about things. Yeah, I'm um, always looking backwards and regretting everything. But right. That's a, so that's it, a separate yeah. show. Well, that I think you need to talk to someone else about. <laughs> yeah, that might not be me. Maybe our next guest. Yeah. Anyway. <laughs> so I'm thinking forward and how I can make a change and what I liked about 2018 and what I want right. to do for 2019. So it's more of intention setting. And in specifically for me, it's food related. Right. So I'm always thinking about food. I'm always thinking about health and 
your body and how good your body feels and how food is such an important part of it and how food is medicine. What did I like that I did in 2018 and what I'm going to do in 2019? And I start doing it through December. Right. So that it's so not you, such so a you, shock. So you've done that. And now yeah. and now that we're in January. Yeah. So let's let's talk about some of the more specific intentions that you that you have. Okay. So back in December, yeah. I started thinking about the things that I really liked that I started doing through the year and how I could implement that more in January and make it even better. Okay. So a few of the things and the other thing is is that I just want to step back for a sec. In December, I really started thinking about it so I wouldn't lose com- complete tro- control over the holiday season. So it brought through January and here we go. So I started changing my sugars. Okay. We can talk about that. I started changing my dairies. Right. So I'm not saying go off sugar, go off dairy, but start switching it up. All right. So let's let's focus on sugars okay. for a second. So I cut out white sugar. Okay. In December. And now in January the addiction is pretty much gone. And it takes about two weeks to get rid of any sort of lifestyle type addiction, I think at least two weeks, so two weeks at minimum right. to change a pattern. I've never changed anything in two weeks. God bless no, you. No, but it's more like a pattern, yeah. you know, and before you even know it, you're feeling so good that you don't even want to go back. So to the when, way you say, it was. when you say swapped out or, or, or cut out the, the white sugar, what do you mean? You mean you're not putting a spoonful in your coffee? You mean you're not cooking with it? What right. Do you, what, do you, what do you mean? Yeah, I mean both. So it started with coffee actually, and we'll talk about coffee a little bit later, yeah. but in order to cut out white sugar, I actually had to cut out coffee. Okay. Because I couldn't have coffee without sugar. I stopped putting sugar in my coffee. I only have one cup a day. I only have the morning coffee. Okay. And now I still have it, but I hate it. Right. I have to say, because I, I like the sugar in the coffee, and now the coffee just tastes, tastes strong to me. So same with me, Jamie. So let's talk about coffee in a couple minutes, but okay. let's go to sugar first. Okay. Because I quit coffee too. But I actually quit coffee a while ago, but we could talk about that. So sugars. First of all, I cut out white sugar, and I switched it for coconut sugar. It's still sugar. Right. We know that. Let's not pretend. Right. But it's much lower on the GI scale, the, the glycemic index. Right. It is the lowest sugar form on the glycemic index of any sugar out there. Honey is excellent too, and so is maple syrup. So it doesn't spike your blood sugar the same way regular sugar does. It also doesn't have the same response for your body in terms of cortisol and putting the same stress on your body. Where's agave on there? Because we cook with a fair bit of agave. So agave's feeling has really changed. I can't speak directly to it because there's a lot of different philosophies out there in agave, but it has a higher glycemic index and doesn't process as well in your body. So coconut sugar is the way to go. And so I bake a lot. You know that I cook a lot and forget baking, even cooking. Like you put sugar in things. I put sugar in some of my uh, spice mixes, all of those kind of things and baking. I switch it one for one. It doesn't behave exactly like regular white sugar, but it behaves pretty well in cookies and cakes. So good enough. When you say it doesn't behave the exact same way, what what sort of differences are you noticing? It melts differently. It doesn't cream the same way with butter and it makes the cookies a little bit flatter and a little bit darker than white sugar would. White sugar really helps the cookies to stand up. It really helps, you know, the cakes to rise in a sense. Coconut sugar does not behave the same way, but it works. It works well. So in my cooking school, I have pretty much switched all of my white sugar to coconut sugar, at least in the last few months or a year. Okay, so you also uh, referenced dairy. So what are you doing differently there? So dairy, for me personally, is very bad for me. Are you lactose intolerant? I'm not lactose intolerant, but my body has a lot of inflammation when I eat dairy. I'm not allergic to it, so I don't want to speak about that. But since I 
quit dairy or move to goat dairy, I am much, much better. Right, because so, there's not as much lactose in, in the goat. Right, and it digests much better, and it doesn't inflame your gut as much. Okay, when we say that, I mean, there's people who are lactose intolerant, and, you know, my father actually had it, and he was extremely lactose intolerant, and it didn't matter where which, the, dairy. which dairy was, not. it was all bad. Right, if you, so, if you need to quit dairy, quit dairy. I'm just yeah. saying, if you're one of those people like me, also, I had a dairy addiction a bit. Like, once I started with the cheese, I just couldn't stop, yeah. right? My first job was at a cheese shop. Oh, so that would kill I, me. So, like, I yeah. love cheese. Yeah, me too. Love it. Cheese can be addictive. Yeah. So, anyway, I switched to goat. Yep. And I don't even love it as much, so I quit. So, I, I eat less dairy now. Well, it tends to be sharper, right? No, yeah. no, no matter what, like, uh, cow's milk cheeses and dairy tends to be smoother. Yeah. Whereas goat is a sharper taste. Yeah. And if you're okay with that, yeah. it's just more intense. But, but you could get goat feta, and you could get yep. goat mozzarella, and yep. you could get goat cheese, obviously. Right. Okay. Okay, so you mentioned before you're not drinking coffee. What are you drinking? So I'm in love with this, Jamie. Like, I am drinking a matcha latte every single day. Okay. I have been since last September. Wow. Yeah. I decided one day I'm just quitting coffee cold turkey, and I did it. I yeah. actually did it, and I have a very addictive personality, and I just quit it. So what I do every single day is I'll steam some almond milk in my little steamer, yep. and I'll put a teaspoon of matcha powder, like the original, beautiful, authentic, organic matcha powder into my mug. I pour a couple tablespoons of boiling water over it, and then I pour the steamed almond milk over it. So were you drinking coffee for the caffeine? Yeah. All right. So does Matt tell everybody what matcha is and then tell us what the what the caffeine okay, level is. Okay. So matcha is green tea powder, but it's the leaf ground. Right. Is that the gunpowder? Yes. So you're getting the pure leaf. So you're getting all the benefits of green tea plus all the benefits of actually eating the leaf. Right. So it's a really pure form. So matcha does have caffeine in it. Right. So that's great for people who need caffeine. However, it doesn't behave the same way in your body. It has something called theanine in it, mm-hmm. which has a very slow release of caffeine. It has a very calming and relaxing effect and does not affect the same the cortisol levels in your brain. In fact, the theanine blocks cortisol in your brain. Hmm. So it doesn't behave as stressfully in your body. So caffeine acts, caffeine puts your body in a fight or flight situation. Matcha powder does not. Interesting. Yeah, it's amazing stuff. So I quit that. And the other reason why I drank coffee, and I think for most of you out there, you're probably feeling this, that um, it's a ritual. For sure. Totally a ritual. It's that warming ritual in the morning, ritual in the afternoon. I need a midday coffee. I need a mid-afternoon latte. The matcha has that same ritual. It has that warming, delicious, cozy feeling that a coffee has. So in terms of ritual, I can't get rid of that. So I couldn't go to just green tea or green tea made with water. It just didn't sit with me. So the matcha worked really, really well for me. I got a little bit of a buzz. And the other thing the matcha does that's so awesome is that it has a caffeine spike, so like a a high, if you want, right. for three to four hours, whereas coffee caffeine is like an hour max. Wow, that's like mm-hmm. uh, that's the difference between uh, regular pot and edibles. It's exactly, a, it's, it's slow that long, release. It's a slow yeah. release, longer which buzz. we all want. Exactly. Yeah. All right. So um, we were talking before the show, and you mentioned to me um, you were talking about gluten, and I have some strong feelings about me gluten. Me too. But but um, I actually been going the other way with most people. I've been I've been getting the double O flour because we've been yeah. making our own pasta. Yeah. But for those who are looking who have gluten sensitivities or who think they may want to cut it out, what what do you okay. recommend? So first of all, I don't want to speak about like gluten intolerance, celiac, right. or I don't want to talk about yeah. that. But I just want to talk about people who are eating a lot of white stuff, right. and it's really upsetting to your stomach. Our flour is milled so poorly these days. So eating a fermented 
uh, sourdough, even if it's glutinous, is much better for your body because it's something that's been fermented. So a fermented bread, a fermented, uh, f- uh, f- basically a fermented bread. Yeah, we, we have a sourdough starter in our fridge oh, that you a do? friend gave us. Okay. Are you uh, taking care of it? Well. You've got to treat it like a baby. I know. It's, I'm, I'm not responsible for it. I'm responsible for our dog. My wife is responsible. Okay. And it's like the dog. I know, but I'm not, com- I'm not commenting on how she did. I'm not going to out my wife on the radio. Because you need to treat it every single day. You I can't know. even go on vacation. No, it's you harder cannot. than the dog. Exactly. There's no dog walker for your fermentation the, No, starter. it's hard to get somebody to, yeah. to, to walk your fermentation. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Do we have time for one more point? One, one quick. Okay, so the other thing that I really made sure that I started doing much better is meal prepping. And I'm, I'm the meal prep queen. So I really started to make sure that I had chopped vegetables that you could purchase in the grocery store, like like uh, rice cauliflower, rice broccoli, chopped, ca- chopped kale, shredded Brussels sprouts, so that every single Sunday or Monday, it was in my fridge, it set me up for all week long, and I've been eating much, much healthier lately. Fantastic. Thanks for coming on the show today. Pleasure, always. So when you come back next month, let's talk about how to have a healthy Valentine's Ooh, Day. Ooh, love that. Awesome. We've got to take a short break, but when we return, we're going to learn all about traveling to Morocco on The Tonic. And now the soul segment with spiritual medium, transpersonal therapist and teacher, Lisa Marvin. Through her use of tarot cards, your questions about love, money and career are sure to be answered. Hi everyone. Thanks for joining me for this week's soul segment. Today we'll be focusing on your relationships. The way this works is that I have pulled three cards to get a glimpse as to what to expect for the week. The first card is the energy that has brought you to where you are now. The second card is what you need to focus on right now. And the third card is the energy that's going to carry you into the future. You might have noticed a lot of changes within your personal relationships. The first card that we're going to look at is the Tower card. This means that recently, you've noticed a major change in the way that you act and feel in certain relationships. You may have noticed that certain people are acting differently with you as well. Although uncomfortable, these changes will create a firmer ground for you to stand on. This week, you have the Ace of Swords. This means that you'll experience new inspiration in how you want to interact with others. Once you feel more confident and inspired, you have the Ten of Wands, That means that you'll release all the burdens and old negative ideas that you've been carrying with you that no longer serve you in your relationships. Change can be hard, but the outcome is always positive. Good luck. Thank you for joining me, and I'm looking forward to connecting again with you next week. This has been The Soul Segment with Lisa Marvin. To contact Lisa with your questions, please visit metaphysique.ca. At Agmedica, we all feel fortunate to be living in this great country and investing our time, efforts, resources, and passion in something that's making and will continue to make an enormous impact on people's well-being, their health care options, as well as the trusted availability of a safe and consistent medical cannabis product right from the start. That's the patient promise we make to all of our customers. At Agmedica, we also understand the treatment journey and the thought that goes into trying something new, Who are we? We are continuous learners, always looking to surpass boundaries and deliver a positive experience for the great people we serve across all diverse communities, acknowledging the past and embracing the future. Come join Agmedica as the journey continues. Hi, this is Jamie Busson. I'm not only the host of the Tonic Talk Show, I'm also the publisher of Tonic Magazine. 
Tonic is a health and wellness magazine distributed with the Globe and Mail to home subscribers in the most affluent neighborhoods in Toronto. It's also available free on racks at over 150 locations across the GTA. For more information about Tonic Magazine, visit tonictoronto.com. Hey, if you like the Tonic Talk Show, you'll love Tonic Magazine, and vice versa. This is The Tonic on Zoomer Radio. Welcome back. If you're interested about travel to Morocco or Moroccan tours, your contact should be Elaine Dixon. She's worked with Sahara Adventures since 2013. She visits Morocco several times a year and dreams of living in the country, at least during our winters. And she's visited almost every corner of the country, always marveling at their beauty and diversity. Elaine wrote a great travel piece in the January issue of Tonic, all about the charms of traveling to Morocco. When my family traveled to Spain last year, we made our way to the beautiful Seville in Andalusia, and we tried to make the hop down to Morocco. But with the five of us traveling and a tight schedule, we just couldn't work it out. And I thought it would be great to bring Elaine into the show to hear what we missed. Welcome to the tonic, Elaine. Oh, thank you so very much, Jamie. So when people think about Morocco, what's what's the first thing? What's the, the big selling point for the country? Well, I think that what most people ask me about first is the Sahara Desert. And that's because that's what they think of first when they think about Morocco. Not that many people know very much about Morocco here, um, except for the dunes, of course. And they find them mysterious because the desert is the one landscape that most people have never experienced. So, you know, every country has mountains, lakes, beaches... But very few have these majestic sand dunes, and they're, of course, so accessible in Morocco. So, for some people, it's not just the dunes, it's also, you know, the idea of the camel ride and the tent camp. Those things are just really compelling for people. Have you done those camping tours into the desert? I hear they're fantastic. Oh, yes, I have. I've done that many times, and it's, you know... You can read the guidebooks all you like, and it's really great to do your research around that sort of thing, but there is just no comparison for getting on that camel, feeling it rise beneath you, and then suddenly it's like you're being thrust back a thousand years. You know, you you close your eyes, and it's just like you're on one of those caravans bringing trade goods across the continent. It's just... Nothing like it. <laughs> yeah, there's a real romance there, but it's not. It, yeah, it's not just the desert, though, right? I mean, there's other there's other aspects of Morocco, right? Oh my goodness, where to start? Uh, Morocco is just made for road trips because the variety in landscape and terrain is just incredible. You go around a, a bend in the road, and every time it seems like there's another jaw-dropping vista that just demands a photo stop. There are magnificent, unspoiled beaches all up and down the Atlantic coast and also across the northern Mediterranean. Uh, There are a couple of places where you find incredible rock formations like the Arches down at uh, Lexira Beach south of Agadir or up near Tangier, the Grotte de Hercule. They're magnificent and so unexpected. And then, of course, since Morocco has three mountain ranges, you get sweeping vistas from high mountain passes like the Tichka Pass and the Test Pass and then beautiful tiered waterfalls like those at Cascade du Zoud, which is one of our day trips from Marrakesh. Um, then, of course, vast palm oases like those at Skoura or the Ziz Valley. These are special places that they're, they're not just sites to be seen. There are actually things to do that make these places absolutely unforgettable. And, and there's agriculture there too, right? So if you're interested in looking at the farming and the groves, there's opportunities for that as well, right? 
Oh, absolutely. In fact, it's very special to drive through the countryside, uh, again, for the sense of variety. Because if you're driving through northern Fez, up around Fez, you think that you could be in Canada somewhere in the rural areas when you're seeing big barley and wheat fields almost, um, you know, like ours. Wow. The only thing that's kind of different is you you see these, uh, instead of fences, um, you know, huge uh, swaths of cactus growing, which serve as the barriers between the, the fields. So it's a little bit of a surprise to see that. Right. And, and Morocco, you know, I, I didn't know they had barley, but I certainly knew they had spices. That That's a huge crop for them, right? Oh, yes. Uh, and so if you want to sort of go down the other end of the country, down near a city called Warzazat, uh, southeast of, of Marrakesh, uh, that's really the center of the spice-growing region. And it's not uncommon for you to drive through the countryside and see, uh, you know, bright red peppers all spread out, drying in the sun, waiting, waiting to be converted into harira or something like that. So, mm-hmm. yes, there's lots of spices. The other thing, too, a uh, little bit, West of Warzazat, there's a city called Taluin, and that's the center of the saffron-growing region. So lots of people don't really appreciate the fact that Morocco actually is at least as competitive as Spain when it comes to producing the world's best saffron. And saffron has to be very carefully cultivated and, and, and taken in, right? Like, they are the... Is it the stamen of the of the flower, or how, how is it harvested, you know? Yes, that's correct. And so... Um, it's uh, it's really the stamens of the crocus flower, and uh, those are harvested in the fall. So you're thinking about uh, October, November, something like that. Right. And uh, these are laboriously hand-picked and then carefully peeled apart again by hand to pick out those bright red stamens. So there's a real um, uh, labor associated with harvesting saffron, uh, but it's also a very... Um, communal activity, and we like to take people to one of the little saffron farms where they can either see or sometimes participate in um, picking those flowers apart. Do you, when you when you do those tours, are the, is it like a foodie opportunity? Do you get to eat sort of locally when you do that? Do you get to eat? Oh yes, you certainly get to eat. <laughs> Morocco has a fabulous uh, cuisine, as you probably know, and yep. so. Um, Sometimes people wonder if it's hot because they hear that it's spicy, but actually there's very little in Moroccan cuisine that's actually hot spicy. And in that case, usually you're adding it yourself at the table rather than having it cooked into the food. So instead, what characterizes Moroccan cuisine is the fact that they use the sweet and spicy, or sorry, sweet and savory spices, uh, usually in combination with uh, savory. Like cinnamon, so, for example, right? And exactly, yeah. So you might get a, a lamb or chicken or, or beef dish with your onions and your carrots, just like you would have here at home. But they will be adding cumin and cardamom and um, probably also some cinnamon, and they might throw in some prunes or apricots and maybe even some almonds. So it's this glorious combination of the sweet and savory that really makes uh, Moroccan cuisine so special. Yeah, you're making me hungry for some tagine as we speak. Good, good. (laughs) Well, and while we're on the topic of food, let me remind you that Morocco actually has a growing wine culture. Does it really? Yes, so some people are surprised about that because it is a Muslim country. Right. Yes, technically, um, uh, Muslims are forbidden from consuming alcohol, but thanks to the colonizers of Spain and uh, France over the the years, then um, the climate's perfect for wine growing, and so there's many regions where you can actually um, go in for wine tastings and uh, try some of their wine with your dinner. 
Yeah, and what, what the listeners might also not appreciate is uh, Morocco has a connection uh, to spas and sort of natural beauty treatments as well, right? Oh, yes, that's true as well. So many people have heard of the famous hammam, which is uh, the public baths. And so often they're also calling to mind the Turkish tradition, which is similar, but not, not exactly the same. Right. So, um, yeah, in the same way, there's, there's a common foundation in that uh, the Romans originated the public baths. And so as they uh, went through the, uh, the world, then they, of course, uh, built hammams. And, um, of course, it was public because at the time no one had water service directly to their house as we do today. So, right. Um, cold water for household use was still obtained at public wells and later, of course, at taps in the Medinas. And you can still see these in use today in some areas. But creating enough hot water for bathing was very labor-intensive, and so it was practical for everyone just to go to the public bath. So um, even though, of course, Moroccan people now have private baths with showers and so on in their homes, they still love to go to the hammam, not only for the social interaction, because, of course, you meet your friends and neighbors there, but for the luxurious experience of sitting in the steam and getting a really good scrubbing and coming out feeling just incredibly clean. Yep. And, and uh, also, I think Morocco, uh, one of their important exports is argan oil. Is that right? Oh, yes. So, um, and in fact, uh, it's also used as part of the hammam ritual as well. Right. So, uh, yes. Yes, it's very interesting because... Um, People probably understand argan oil as an ingredient in hand lotions and shampoos and things that we get here. Yep. But there's really only one place in Morocco and therefore one place in the world where the argan tree is grown. And that's uh, southeast of, of Marrakesh uh, en route to one of the coastal cities by the name of Isuera. Yep. So in that one little region, you have argan trees growing. And that's where all of the oil, argan oil in the world is uh, is. Uh, harvested. And it smells lovely. My wife uses it every single day, and it's fantastic. Yes, well, I'm sure she really appreciates the benefits because it is a beautiful oil, and uh, it's also used in cooking as well. So when you go to Morocco, you can visit a women's cooperative where uh, argan oil is processed for both culinary and cosmetic uses, and um, of course you can buy some as well. So uh, yes, it's commonly used for both of those purposes. Fantastic. We only have one more more question, but it's sort of a, a big one, and that is we think of Morocco sort of for its natural beauty, but also there's a lot of lot to, lot going on in the in the cities, right? Oh yes, yes, absolutely. Um, we love taking people through the cities as well as through the countryside because Morocco actually has nine UNESCO World Heritage sites, and if you do nothing but visit the cities, you'll visit six of them. So, for example, the Medinas in uh, the current capital, Rabat, uh, Tetuan, Meknes, Fez, Marrakesh, and Isuera, all of them are on that list. And then if you also visit um, Qasar Ait bin Haru near the city of Warzazat, which is sort of the classic example of the uh, mud and straw uh, architecture, um, that's another one. And then I've mentioned the Roman ru ruins also at uh, Volubilis and uh, the old Portuguese city in El Jadida. Uh, that completes the set of nine. So, you know, it would be easy to visit Morocco and spend two weeks doing nothing but visiting these great cities because they really are treasures for the world, not just for Morocco. Well, that, that's fantastic. That's unfortunately, I, you know, we could talk for, for hours about Morocco, but unfortunately, <laughs> that's all the time we have today. Thank you for coming on the show. Thank you so very much for having me. 
Thank you for listening to The Tonic. You can download this episode as a podcast on zoomaradio.ca and thetonic.ca. For amazing articles written by our guests, be sure to pick up your copy of Tonic Magazine. Tonic's available free on racks at over 200 locations across the GTA and delivered with the Globe and Mail to home subscribers in 11 choice neighbourhoods in Toronto. Or you can visit our website at tonictoronto.com. If you're interested in providing feedback or coming on the show, you can email me at jamie at tonictoronto.com. Please join us next week on The Tonic when we discuss medical cannabis, edibles in the snack market, and the interconnectedness between sexual satisfaction and relationship satisfaction. Until then, this is Jamie Busson wishing you a healthy and happy week. Please consult a healthcare professional before starting any diet, exercise, supplementation, or medication program. This has been a paid announcement. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.